Let's pray. God, please uh, speak to our hearts as we are opening up your word, ready to hear your truth. We want to be changed. We do not want to walk out the same way we came in. We want to walk out closer to you, more aware of your presence, more filled with your Holy Spirit, more surrendered to your guidance. And we pray that you would do those things in our hearts tonight, Lord, through the power of your word and the power of your Holy Spirit. And then we just ask all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. So like we said last week, 2 Timothy is, as far as anybody knows, the very last letter that Paul wrote. Um, and so with that, the, the, the epistles of Paul are not put in the Bible in chronological order. They're put in order of the letters to the churches, sorted by length, and the letters to individuals, sorted by length. And so we find ourselves, we still have two more, at least, books of Paul to cover in the New Testament, but um, we're giving, 2 Timothy is given to us as the last book that Paul wrote. And so with that, uh, it's very relevant because it's, it's the last words of a man who knows he's dying. And so there's a sense of urgency, and it's as if, you know, we said last week, as if Romans wasn't enough, as if First and Second Corinthians and Galatians and Ephesians and Philippians and Colossians and First and Second Thessalonians and First Timothy and Titus and Philemon, as if all those books weren't enough, Paul said, there's one more thing, I, there's, I've got one letter's worth more that I need to say. There's something I want to get down on paper before I die. And so... This book is written with a sense of urgency, a sense of passion, a sense of you had better be listening, Timothy, because this really matters. If I could condense it all into four chapters, here it is. And so the book is just full of application for any person who wants to serve the Lord. It's full application for any person who wants to finish serving the Lord well, who wants to serve the Lord to the end of their life, right? If you don't want to just have a good run and then fall off the radar, uh, the book of Second Timothy is full of practical advice on how do you stay faithful, how do you continue, and in in what the Lord wants to do. And so there's a lot of exhortations in the first half about, hey, be diligent, stir up the gift that was given to you. You be faithful as a minister, you be strong in the grace that's in Jesus Christ. Paul talks about, you know, he says, you remember that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. And you know, the, the pinnacle of what does it mean and the pinnacle of what is gonna keep you faithful is understanding who Jesus Christ is, what he's done, and what he's doing. And so tonight we, we just pick up the last, the, pick up the idea, pick, carry on the thought, and Paul's now gonna just give a handful of warnings and exhortations back to back, and they're all incredibly relevant. He says, but know this, chapter three, verse one, that in the last days perilous times will come, for men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanderers, without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power. And from such people, turn away. On a completely tangential note, Something about this paragraph just begs to be read in a Scottish accent. I've been doing it in my head all day long. You can try it when you get home. It's so beautiful in a Scottish accent. But anyways, Paul's warning Timothy that in the last days, perilous times will come. Dangerous times will come. So this is a warning for the last days. But it's important to understand when do the last days take place? Are we in the last days or not? Some pastors would say yes. Some pastors would say no. The answer is yes. Because 
In Acts chapter 2, on the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit falls upon the church, Peter stands up and he says, this is what was spoken of, this is a fulfillment of what the Lord spoke by the prophet Joel, saying, in the last days, says the Lord, it'll come to pass in the last days, I will pour out my spirit on all mankind. Peter says, the mark of the fullness of the Holy Spirit dwelling upon the church is the sign that the last days have begun. Okay, so we are in the last days. Now, are, we are in also in the laster days, right? We are, we are closer to Christ's return than we were 2,000 years ago. By how much? By 2,000 years. And so is Christ going to come back sooner now than when he first you know, ascended back into heaven? Yes. How close is he? I'm not positive. Do I think he's really close? Yes, I do. But am I positive? No. But Paul's warning says in the last days, perilous times will come because, why? Because men will be lovers of themselves. And then everything else in that list, every other warning really brackets under that first heading. If you're a lover of yourself, everything else is just a natural extension. If you're a lover of yourself, you become a lover of money. You become a boaster. You become proud, a blasphemer, disobedient to parents. And he says at the end, they're lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. That's about what Paul describes right here is about the best summary statement for the culture and the world that we live in today that has ever been written. And he writes it 2,000 years ago, but he says, you need to understand that this is coming. Men are going to be lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. And he says they're going to have a form of godliness, but deny its power. Our culture today is in love with itself, right? It invented the selfie. It is obsessed with, can I tell you about what my life looks like? And I'm going to present the best, glossiest version of it that I can. And, and while I'm at it, I'm also going to be a little bit obsessed about can I get all the money and the fun that I want. And I love entertaining myself much more than the pursuit of God. But, they all, but there's a form of godliness. But it's, it's denied of its power, right? The world is, is full of people who are not Christians, who are not even remotely walking according to the word of God. But hey, they're good with God. They're good with the man upstairs. You know, I'm good with the big man. They, they, have, they have all these, hey, I believe in God. I'm, I'm spiritual. I'm just not religious. There's all these expressions that people will give us because they have a form of godliness, but they've denied its power. And Paul says, from such people, you need to turn away. So beware of letting yourself be in a position where you're being influenced by someone who's in love with himself. Beware of being in a position where you're letting yourself be influenced by someone who's a lover of pleasure rather than a lover of God. And as he's going on, Beware of someone who's going to influence you who has a form of godliness but denies its power, which begs the question if we're supposed to turn away from people who have a form of godliness but deny its power, what do we do with the power of the gospel? Do we believe, do we have that power? You know, in Romans chapter 1, you'd think I'd stick bookmarks where I'm going to flip, but I usually don't. In Romans chapter 1, verse 16, Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation. Paul says, the gospel is the power of God. If you ask someone, are you a Christian, that's the same thing as asking them, are you filled with the power of God in your life? It's the same statement. And so is the power of God marking your life? Is it marking my life? Are we, are we surrendered to the Lord? Are we loving, lovers of God more than lovers of pleasure? Are we experiencing the power of God? Paul's issuing a warning to Timothy. Hey, watch out for being influenced by these people, but there's a corollary argument in what he's saying 
which is, hey, you make sure you're not these people, and as part of that, you make sure you're experiencing the power of God in your life and in your ministry. In verse six, he says, from, for, for of this sort, from these lovers of self, are those who creep into households and make captives of gullible women loaded down with sins, led away by various lusts, always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Now, as Janus and Jambres resisted Moses, so do these also resist the truth. Men of corrupt minds disapprove concerning the faith, but they will progress no further, for their folly will be manifest to all as theirs also was. So, of this sort, of these people who are lovers of themselves rather than lovers of God, they will creep into households and make captives of gullible men and, and gullible women, gullible men and women, gullible people. And they're going to be led away by various lusts. They'll always be learning. Oh, they'll, they'll always be reading a new spiritual book or listening to a new spiritual podcast, but they're never going to come to the knowledge of the truth. Beware of any doctrine or any person that teaches you that you should love yourself. And notice, these people who love themselves, and what are they going to do? They're going to creep into households and make captives. Loving yourself, being in love with yourself, pursuing your own self-interest is the way you become a captive. It's the way you become a slave. Okay, if you want to walk in freedom in life, you will never do it by focusing on yourself. It, focusing on yourself is the guarantee for misery in life. All right, but if you want to experience joy and freedom, you focus on other people, right? Paul says lovers of themselves will make captives of other people. They'll be stuck in this spiritual cycle that has, has no power of God behind it, but man, there's a lot of effort, and man, you are just, you're awesome because you're in love with yourself, and if you can just, you know, manifest a little more of, of who you are and all your goodness and just kind of bring it to the surface, oh, there's incredible things there. No, no, no. That's heresy. Okay? That's falsehood. It's a lie. Okay? And then sometimes it's just important to say that. There are pastors all across the country who love saying, you know, hey, you can have your best life now. If you have your best life now, do you know what that means? It means you're going to hell. Right? You're, this is your worst life now if you're a Christian. This is the bottom of the barrel for us. All right? I do not want this to be the best that I've got. Okay? So, there's, but if you're in love with yourself and this is just your best life now and you were destined to, you know, have all these manifest things manifest if you just believe for them, no, no, that's not, that's not true. That's being a lover of yourself and that's going to lead us into captivity. So Paul's warning Timothy, you do not go down this road. If you're going to be an effective Christian, do not be in love with yourself. Be in pursuit of God. And he says, now as Janus and Jambres resisted Moses, and that's a, that's a reference to Jewish tradition, which says that those are the names of the, the two magicians in Egypt who resisted Moses, okay? So if you're like, I have never, their names are not in the book of Exodus, but Jewish tradition says that those are their names. He says, in the same way that those guys were always fighting against what Moses was doing, these people will resist the truth. They're men of corrupt minds. They are disapproved concerning the faith, but their folly will be manifest to all. Sooner or later, if you're in love with yourself, it becomes apparent to the world that you are just in it for yourself. And, and it becomes apparent that whatever you're running is about glorifying you. And there's a point in time at which it's like, oh, that's the racket. That's the scheme. That's the game. 
Paul says, you know what? These guys resisted Moses. And if you go back in the book of Exodus, they're resisting Moses. They're trying to equal themselves to the power of God. And there comes a point as the plagues are coming when they say, hey, you know what? We can't. We're, we're outclassed here. This is not, this is a bigger God than we've ever come up against. Right? And sooner or later, if you're a lover of yourself, there's a brick wall that comes. And so if you're, it's just, it's that captivity will, it might be fun. It might make you feel like you're on your, you know, having your best life now. But sooner or later, there's a brick wall of reality that says this is miserable. Verse 10, Paul says, but you have carefully followed my doctrine, manner of life, purpose, faith, long-suffering, love, perseverance, persecutions, afflictions, which happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, at Lystra, what persecutions I endured. Paul says, hey, I'm not writing this because you're going down this road. I'm writing this because I want you to be encouraged because you are doing well. And sometimes that's important to remember as we're reading the word of God. Sometimes the word of God wants to just remind us, hey, you're doing well. Keep going. Keep pursuing. So he says, hey, Timothy, you're doing great. I'm encouraging you, you know, and stir up the gift that's in you like we read last week. Be bold. Don't be afraid. But hey, you're doing good. You're, you're carefully following the doctrine that I've given you. And, you've, and you're aware of the reality. He says you're aware of the persecutions that I've endured. Verse, uh, he says, and out of them all the Lord delivered me. Verse 12, yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. But evil men and imposters will grow worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. But you must continue in the things which you have learned and been assured of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. So Paul says, all right, one of the, one of the marks of living a godly life. If you want a promise from the Lord that you can hang on, it's that if you desire to live a godly life, you will suffer persecution. Yay. That's, that's a promise from the Lord, okay? And we sometimes say, that's not a very encouraging promise. Well, it depends. I mean, in a sense, no, you're right. It's, it's horribly discouraging. Like, I'm guaranteed? Like, like, absolutely? Or like, mostly? Like, no, Absolutely. And so, yeah, it could be discouraging. But on the flip side, remember, this is the worst it gets. So at any point in time, anything you're going through, you can say, man, this is like the bottom. It's all going up from here. I'm going to experience the glory of Christ after this. I'm going to experience, you know, fellowship with the Lord on a way that I can't even fathom. I have it now, but man, wait till it's face to face, right? There's, there's a promise even in our suffering that, hey, yes, you will suffer, but Paul says, but you need to continue in the things you've learned and been assured of. Paul's saying, look, you're doing great. Just stay focused. And sometimes that's an important exhortation for some of us to say, you know what? Hey, you're growing. You're walking with the Lord. And it may not always be that exciting, but you know what you need to do? Stay focused. And he says, you know what you've learned. Kind of, you know, you know who you are. You know what you've learned. And that from childhood, you've known the Holy Scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. Notice a couple of things. One, the power of the word of God on a child's heart. If you want to impact a child, teach them the word of God. Because the word of God is, we'll get to in a second, it's alive. And it can speak truth to their hearts in a way that no other education can. Right? It doesn't matter what you teach your children. 
as long as you're teaching them the word of God. Everything else, there are other things that are important. There are other things that are completely not important. But there are other things that are important. But you sh- the word of God is first and foremost. And he says, it is able to make you wise for salvation through faith. Reading the word of God can give you the faith you need to receive the wisdom you need to accept the salvation that you need. Because it takes a certain amount of faith to say, I believe that this is true. And it takes a certain amount of wisdom to say, I need God's help in my life. And the word of God can bring all those things about in a person's heart. And so Paul's encouraging Timothy, hold steady, hold fast, stay focused. And now, as he's talking about the scripture, he's going to go into a new thought, or he's going to connect the thought. Verse 16, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. That verse right there is one of the central verses of the scripture because it makes an absolute truth claim. Okay? So it says, all scripture is given by inspiration of God. That's not an idea. It's not a, uh, there, there's, it's not a qualified statement. It's an absolute statement, okay? All scripture is given by inspiration of God. An absolute statement, by definition, is either true or false. So when Paul says all scripture is given by inspiration of God, either that's true or it's false. If it's false, then it's up to us to find truth on our own. And if most scripture is given by inspiration of God, then it's up to us to sort out which pieces are inspired, which pieces are error fill which you know it, then all of a sudden everything about discerning truth comes back to us and it's our responsibility but if it's true if it's true that all scripture is given by inspiration of God then how much scripture is given by inspiration of God all of it so how much of the scripture has relevance for us all of it and in case we weren't sure exactly what he meant by that all scripture is given by inspiration of God Paul says and it is profitable All scripture is profitable for the Christian believer. Now, there's pieces that are admittedly a little harder to get through than others, right? The, you know, the book of Job, every year, if you're going through a one-year Bible plan, like, you know, Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, Job Psalms. Okay, we're back to Psalms and Proverbs, right? Like, there's just that, like, "Mm," you know? But you know what it is? It's profitable. It's, a little, it's an exercise, you know, but 35 chapters of listening to bad doctrine that then gets corrected by the Lord, there's some profit in that. There's some very good profit in that. But it's profitable for several things. For doctrine, if you want to know what does it mean to be a Christian, the Word of God is a great place to start. It is profitable for doctrine. For reproof and for correction, Do you realize the word of God is supposed to correct you? You, If you have never had the word of God slap you, then you are not reading the word of God well, okay? And admittedly, sometimes the Lord, depending on how well you listen to him, slaps different people a little bit harder than others, right? I think he's, Ken Graves says he, I think he speaks to his daughters a little more gently than he speaks to his sons sometimes. But the word of God should correct you. You should be able to point back and say, you know, there was a point in time in which the word of God said this to me and I didn't want to hear it, but it was truth and I needed to hear it and I grew through it. 
right, where the, Lord, where the word of God said, you are wrong. You are in error. You need to repent of this or fix this or deal with this. And if we read the word of God and we're just reading through and that never happens, then you need to go back and say, wait a second, am I reading the word of God to grow because it's profitable? Or am I reading the word of God to make sure that everything I believe in, it gets affirmed and patted on the back? Do we read the word of God like it is supposed to validate us? Or do we read the word of God like it is supposed to teach us? Right? And then he says it's profitable for instruction in righteousness. Do you want to be more righteous? Do you want to sin less and walk in righteousness more? Do you want to have fewer defeats and more victories? Then the word of God is profitable for you. How much of it? All of it. And he says it's that, that the man of God or the woman of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped. The word of God will not leave you partially equipped. It will not leave you mostly equipped. It will not give you you know, a liberal arts, well-rounded, broad-based education, and you can dive into the details later on. The Word of God will leave you thoroughly equipped for every good work. Every good thing that God wants to see accomplished in your life, He can prepare you for through His Word and through His Holy Spirit opening up your eyes and your heart to His Word. So the Word of God, Paul says, you hang on to the Word of God. And so he's addressing that to Timothy as an individual But now in chapter 4, he's going to move on and carry the same idea out to a church. So he says, I charge you, therefore, chapter 4, verse 1, before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Convince, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and teaching. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers, and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. But you be watchful in all things, endure afflictions, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. Paul says, Timothy, I charge you. This is not a suggestion. This is not an idea. This is a charge. Okay, this is from an old soldier passing on instruction to a young soldier. And I'm not charging this, Paul says, by my own opinion or by my own ideas. This is before God and the Lord Jesus Christ. As if there wasn't enough holiness in the idea of the Lord Jesus Christ, he says this is before the Lord Jesus Christ who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing and his kingdom. Before the God who is going to judge everything you've ever done, I'm giving you this command. Preach the word of God. You be ready with the word of God in season and out of season. You faithfully, continually, steadfastly teach the word of God. You convince, you rebuke, and you exhort. Convince. If someone's having struggles and questions with how does the word of God apply, you help them get through it. If somebody needs to be exhorted and they're just, you know, they're struggling and, and man, they're, they're wrestling with, with guilt and shame, you build them up. If somebody needs to be rebuked because they're walking in sin, you rebuke them. The Word of God will do all of those things. I think it was, I think it was G.K. Chesterton. If you're ever in doubt about who said it, G.K. Chesterton is a safe bet. So it was probably G.K. Chesterton who said, where the Word of God is supposed to be a crutch to, to fix a broken bone, it's not my job to use it as a club to beat you over the head. But where the Word of God is supposed to be a lion to bite you, it's not my job to pull out its teeth. 
right? The word of God is going to work in all of our hearts. It's gonna convince us of certain things. It's going to rebuke us of certain things. And it's gonna exhort us and build us up in certain things. And all of it is profitable and at different times and different seasons because it's alive. Because the word of God is given by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He wrote it and he's still speaking to us through it. It's going to speak to each of us. And sometimes in different times, at different seasons, there's gonna be different points of emphasis that the Holy Spirit brings out to us. That's why it's so important to be in the word on your own time. Coming together as a church is incredible. It's an amazing blessing, right? To come together as a church and say, what does the Lord wanna say to a group of us? How can we collectively encourage each other and build each other up and be part of a mission for what God wants to do in Madison? But the Lord wants to do something individually, right? And it's important that we're part of both. You ought to be saying, you ought to be able to say, you know what, I'm excited about what the Lord is doing in this church, but you ought to be able to also say, I'm excited about what the Lord is doing in my heart. And so that's why Paul addresses this to Timothy as an individual at the end of chapter three. But in chapter four now, he's charging him before the church. And he says, the time's gonna come when they will not endure sound doctrine. There will be a point Believe it or not, Paul says, at which point Christians will not want to hear what the Bible has to say. And they will want to find pastors who tell them what they want to hear. Have you ever heard of somebody doing that? Yeah, that's the world we live in. Paul says, I don't care what happens. I don't care what other churches do. I don't care what's popular. Paul's in prison about to get his head divorced from his body. Popularity is not very high on his list right now. He says, you preach the word of God. And so the word of God is supposed to be a massive part of the church corporately, but it's also supposed to be a massive part of the heart of the individual. And then verse five, he's giving him the exhortation. He says, you be watchful in all things. You endure afflictions, be on guard, hold fast, and do the work of an evangelist. That's a charge for every one of us. He doesn't say, hey, if that's your thing, hey, if if you feel like it, we're all called to be evangelists. And for some of us, that is, a lot harder than it is for others of us, right? I honestly sometimes just hate when I have a good opportunity to share the gospel because I clam up and I don't like, I don't like those conversations because they make me feel awkward, right? And gosh, like, you know, sometimes I just wanted to, to buy the thing that I'm here to buy. I didn't want to have a big conversation. And the Lord says, no, you do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. Every one of us has a ministry that we've been created for and appointed to. And if, and if we say, you know what, I'm not gonna do it. I refuse. It's not, Christianity doesn't hinge on your faithfulness, praise the Lord. But the Lord will get the ministry done, but you will miss an opportunity to be a part of what he's doing. And so he's going on in verse six, really through the end of the chapter, end of the book. He's now gonna give some very personal details of his situation. And this is really, uh, you know, Paul was very much a, kind of a stiff upper, upper lip, keep soldiering through, you persevere, it doesn't matter what they do to me. But in the end of this book, we get some just really profound insights into Paul at his final stage. He says, verse six, for I am already being poured out as a drink offering and the time of my departure is at hand. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Finally, There's laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day. And not to me only, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Paul says, I'm being poured out. 
like, like a glass of water or like a drink offering which, where they'd pour the oil out before the Lord. Right? He says, I'm down to those, the last few drops. It's, it's, this picture's about empty. I'm almost over. The time of my departure is at hand, but what's he say? I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Paul looks back and he says, you know what? I held on. And he's not boasting in his own strength. He's just saying, you know what? This was, this was worth hanging on to to this point. Christianity was not a good run. He didn't have a good four seasons or whatever. You know, he, he, he says, no, I've, I've finished it up. This was worth taking to the end. From the moment that Jesus Christ came to me on the road to Damascus till right now has been me just being poured out. Lord, what do you want to do with my life next? It's all yours. Lord, where do you want to spill me next, if you will? It's all yours. And he's, just, he's reaching a point where there's an awareness of, hey, you know what, I'm, I'm bound at the end. But he says, finally, there's almost a sense of relief. There's laid out for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day. He's like, all right. You know, we're kind of, we're wrapping up. You know, when he's talking to the Philippians, he says, to live is Christ, to die is gain. You guys need me here, so I'll be around for a while. When he's talking to Timothy, he's like, hey, I'm on my way out. And I'm kind of looking forward to this crown of righteousness. This is going to be exciting. I'm, Paul is stoked at this point, even as he's suffering, even as he's wrestling through things. He says, verse 9, be diligent to come to me quickly. And verse 10 is probably the saddest verse in the Bible. For Demas has forsaken me, having loved this present world, and has departed for Thessalonica. Crescens for Galatia, Titus for Dalmatia. Only Luke is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is useful to me for ministry. And Tychicus I have sent to Ephesus. Bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas when you come, and the books, especially the parchments. Paul says, hey, be diligent to come to me. Because... I'm alone. And specifically because Demas has forsaken me. Now Demas, we don't get a ton of information about him, but he's had been a companion of Paul's because he's referenced in other passages, other books. Paul says, you know, as he's wrapping up and this person says hi, this person says hi, Demas says hi. So Demas forsook Paul. Why? Because he loved the present world. Now, it doesn't say that Demas forsook Christianity. He may have, he may not have. But he forsook Paul. Why? Because he loved this present world. Why? Because in the last days, men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, unthankful, unholy, unloving, right? Lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Paul says, man, I'm being poured out as a drink offering. There's a crown of righteousness laid up for me that I'm about to be able to tangibly experience. Demas says, man, Paul is being poured out as a drink offering. And that just looks painful. And besides that, I've got this job opportunity here. I've got this hot girl who's into me over here. I've got all these things. Go- you know, I'm just, you know, Paul, it's nothing personal, right? It's just, it's just, it's not my season, you know? It's just not really a good time for me. It's, it's not my thing. Uh, you know, you're a little bit radical. I just kind of want to be in moderation. I don't want to, I don't want to tick people off. You know, I don't want to be off-putting or I don't want to get ostracized. I, I, it's just not for me right now, okay? Maybe later. There's just, you know, this world has got some, got some perks. I want, I want to experience some things before I settle down, before I get serious. Demas forsook Paul because he loved the present world. And that's about the saddest commentary that you can ever have on somebody's life, right? To say, oh, they had great potential. Have you ever met a Demas? I've met him. I know some of them. 
right? And it's one of the saddest things in the world to, to catch up with them. And there's just, like, there's nothing you can talk about. There's nothing, I mean, you know, you used to be able to talk about what's the Lord doing, how's he impacting your ministry, how can we pray for each other and encourage each other, and it's just like, there's nothing there. It's just gone. To be a Demas is to be the most, frankly, the most pathetic human being, I think, imaginable, because you've tasted the goodness of God and said, just not right now. You know, it's not my thing. That's, that's, a, that's a tragedy. That's a waste of a life. And he's describing these other guys. These ones haven't forsaken them, but he sent them out on mission. Crescens has departed for Galatia. Titus has gone for Dalmatia. Only Luke is with me. And get Mark and bring him with you, for he's useful to me for ministry. If you remember, in the book of Acts, Paul did not consider Mark to be useful for ministry. Paul and his friend Barnabas had been on a mission trip with Mark. Mark had abandoned them because it was getting too intense of persecution. In a sense, you could say Mark forsook Paul because he loved this present world. And they are coming back on a second missionary trip. And Barnabas says, hey, let's take Mark again. You know, encourage him, strengthen him up. Paul says, absolutely not. I will not imperil a ministry for that guy right there. And who was right and who was wrong? You could really say they were both right and they were both wrong. They, uh, you know, Mark did need to get, he needed to grow. And he probably would have been a liability on that trip, but probably, Mark, probably Paul and Barnabas both handled it poorly. Um, but at the end of his life, Paul says, hey, you get Mark. You know, Paul's digging around. I, need, I'm, I could really use some encouragement. I could use somebody who's going to be effective and faithful. Paul does not need somebody who's going to wuss out on him. And so who does he call for? He calls for Mark, who formerly wussed out on him. So Mark has been restored, right? Don't ever underestimate the ability of God to restore somebody, right? Paul is, he's dying and he says, you know what? Mark, that's who, that's who you should bring, right? Get Mark. And then he says, Tychicus, I have sent to Ephesus. Every time you see Tychicus in the scriptures, he's getting sent somewhere. He is always, man, Paul just, I, I've always, like how much time did he and Paul actually get to spend together? I don't know. Because you get the impression, it's like, hey man, good to see you, good to see you too, Paul, what's up? I need you to take this letter and go another 800 miles this way. Okay, sure, let me uh, get a cup of coffee in the morning and I'll be on my way. Tychicus just goes, right? I mean, he's just, he's just walking his way across the entire Roman Empire, carrying the Bible, right? We have, I mean, and, and we have the scriptures that we have in part because Tychicus was faithful. Paul could say, take this letter to this church and he'd say, okay. And he would get there and hand the letter to the church. And we have those letters today. Tychicus just walked a lot. And that's not really the most, you know, like, you don't get too many followers being a walker. You know, like, he just kind of did his thing. And we are reaping the benefits today because of his faithfulness. So faithful men and women who just do their thing are an incredible blessing. But he says, bring the cloak as he's going on. And we'll get to that in a second. But Paul's, you know, he, he's, he's in prison. He says, I'm being poured out. I'm, I'm almost dead. Bring the cloak. I don't have enough clothes right now. This is coming from the guy who told Timothy in 1 Timothy, if we have food and clothing, we can be content. And now as he's getting towards the end of his life, he doesn't have even both of those, right? He doesn't even have enough clothing. And he's still content. Right? So there was a point in which he said, hey, if we have food and clothing, we should be content. And that's still totally true. It's scripture. But there's also a point at which 
you realize, no, if there's even a bigger truth than that, which is if we have Jesus Christ, we can be content. That's, that's really it. Paul doesn't have clothing anymore. Uh, we don't know what his food status was, but Roman prisons weren't exactly famous for the generosity with food. So, you know, it's a little doubtful that he's eating well. What's he got? He's got Jesus Christ and not much else, and that's all he needs. Verse 14, he says, Alexander the coppersmith did me much harm. May the Lord repay him according to his works. You also must beware of him, for he has greatly resisted our words. So be careful of this guy. Verse 16, at my first offense, no one stood with me, but all forsook me. May I not be charged against them. Verse 17, but the Lord stood with me and strengthened me so that the message might be preached fully through me and that all the Gentiles might hear. Also, I was delivered out of the mouth of the lion. You gotta love a guy like Paul who can just, that's his side comment to his you know, story. Did I ever tell you about the time I was almost in the mouth of the lion? Yeah, anyways, no big deal. And the Lord will deliver me from every evil work and preserve me for his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. So Paul says, at my first offense, at my first trial date, nobody stood with me, everybody forsook me. Everybody was, uh, for political reasons or, or just general cowardice or whatever it was, everybody left Paul alone. Paul was on trial by himself. He says, you know what? I hope the Lord doesn't hold that against him. It was a slip up, no big deal. But the Lord stood with me. Nobody stood with me, but the Lord stood with me and strengthened me. God didn't just, you know, he wasn't just there. He wasn't a force or a experience. He was strength to Paul. And he says, he strengthened me so that the message might be preached fully through me and that all the Gentiles might hear. This is important. Paul says, all right, nobody's who with me, but God's who with me. And he strengthened me so that the message might be preached fully through me that all the Gentiles might hear. Paul says, okay, there's a message I've been given to carry. And there's a certain amount of message that I've been assigned to preach. God knows what it is. And until that is completed, he will keep me alive. Until I have preached to every person God wants me to preach to, he will keep me alive. And it's sort of that, uh, you know, halfway positive, halfway negative thing. Like, are we done yet? You know, can I just... Can I die now? But he says, you know, the, the Lord is going to strengthen me until the message has been preached fully. There is something God wants to do in each one of our lives. And he is gracious and he is patient and he is long-suffering and he is merciful to carry us through, to strengthen us, to forgive our sins, to build us up, to rebuke us, to exhort us, to teach us, to minister to us, to grow us, to hold us, to strengthen us, all of those things the Lord can do until we are done with our mission. And the best part is we have no idea when our mission ends, right? Once you die, you know that it ended, okay? But until that moment, how much? I don't know. Paul says, the Lord's got a mission for me. And until I die, the Lord will strengthen me. Until you die, the Lord has a mission for you. That's not an excuse to go try and, you know, do something stupid and get yourself killed. But live with that sense of there's a mission that God has called me to. What is it? There's, there's a, a ministry I'm supposed to have for the people I'm around. I'm supposed to do the work of an evangelist, fulfill my ministry, stir up the gift that's in me. Why? So that the message might be fully preached 
through me. And he says, the Lord's going to deliver me from every evil work and preserve me for his heavenly kingdom. I am not going to, the Lord is going to be faithful. Right? Paul's crown of righteousness that he's going to receive is not going to hinge on Paul's righteousness. It's going to hinge on the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Verse 19, he says, Greet Prisca and Aquila, which probably Priscilla and Aquila, and the household of Anisiphorus. Erastus stayed in Corinth, but Trophimus I have left in Miletus sick. Do your utmost to come before winter. Eubulus greets you, as well as Putins, Linus, Claudia, and all the brethren. Notice, so he's, you know, kind of say hi to these guys. There's evidently some other Christians or friends or whatever around, but there's evidently, they're also evidently not able to get super close to Paul or there's some sort of disconnect because he's alone, but these people are still trying to get word out to say hello. He says, do your utmost to come before winter. Why do you think he wants Timothy to get there before winter? Because he told him to bring the cloak. Paul's worried he's going to freeze to death, right? Paul's on his, on his, he's being poured out. And, you know, however the Lord wants him to go is fine, but I'd really prefer to not freeze to death, right? But hey, the Lord's going to preserve me. The Lord's going to strengthen me. Right, but you get this window. Sometimes we can, you know, if you read the book of Acts, you read First and Second Corinthians, you can think like, wow, Paul just never got, nothing ever slowed Paul up. You know, he's almost this like Superman Christian. Like, well, no, Paul here is, he's scared of freezing. He's scared of being too cold, right? And so it's a very human moment for Paul. But as he's wrapping up, he says, the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, grace be with you, Amen. If Paul could sum up the message to Timothy, right, it, it, the, you know, the final book, the final exhortation, the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit and grace be with you. What is life about? What's the purpose of life? What's the ministry about? What is it about to walk with the Lord and serve the Lord? It's about Jesus Christ being with you. And it's about experiencing grace. Because grace always comes before peace. Because Jesus Christ rose from the dead, right? That's Paul. And Paul dies, right? We're not exactly sure how soon after this letter, but Paul dies. The Emperor Nero is going to have his head cut off as he's starting the persecution against the Christians. And we don't know if Timothy made it to Paul in time, right? We don't know if Paul got to get the parchments and the books. We don't know a lot of details. In fact, by any earthly metric, the only thing we know about Paul is that he died of failure. Right? No friends, no family, no money, no power, no influence. All he had was Jesus Christ by the end of it. Didn't even have enough clothing. He had Jesus Christ. And you know what he says? He says, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, and I have kept the faith. Finally, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness. You could say Paul was a failure in life by any metric other than the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, grace be with you. But if you want to measure it by that, Paul's a success. He was a raging success. He was the chief of sinners, right? He was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor. He says, I, I'm completely unworthy of the Lord ever using me. But the Lord used him. Paul had a ministry. The Lord fulfilled Paul's ministry, and then he let Paul die and said, hey, Paul, here's your crown. Here's your righteousness. It's not about your righteousness. It's about my righteousness. Because my son, Jesus Christ, 
He rose from the dead. And his righteousness has now been given to you. That's what Paul gets at the end, right? So if we want to get that, if we want to receive that, if we want to live with that, pers- that purpose and that passion, Paul gives us the, the key, the guidebook. God wants to grow us. He wants to teach us. He wants to disciple us. He also wants to discipline us if needed, right? Because he's a very good God, but he's also God. There's power and there's holiness and there's justice in the name God as much as there's grace and compassion and mercy, right? So live with that passion and purpose. Live like what Paul said here is true because he made a claim that all scripture is given by inspiration of God. It's either true or it's false. If it's false, you're on your own. You gotta figure your life out on your own. If it's true, then here you go. This is, this is what God wants to say to us, to his people. Lord, we thank you for your word and for the power that's in it to touch hearts and lives, to draw us close. Lord, we do pray that you would prepare us, make us complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. God, rebuke us where, where needed, exhort us, build us up, strengthen us, work in our lives. We do not want to hold on to our opinions or our ideals or ideologies. We want to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. And so we pray that you would do that through your word. We pray that you would do that through the power of your Holy Spirit. And we ask, we pray all these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our King. Amen.